0: Hello, Brad fans, how you doing? If you know me or you've listened to the show, you've probably heard me remark that bugs just happen to go about doing things, all the necessary things for life, in the grossest way possible. Need to eat some food? You know, chew it up, digest it inside, do your business? No, bugs, why don't I spit some juices on it, digest it outside of the body, and then slurp it up through a straw-like appendage? Bug sex. You've probably heard about cannibal black widow spiders but wait did you know that that's actually kind of a myth and that most bugs don't actually do this cannibal behavior especially black widow spiders and this is what we're going to talk about today bug sex including spiders and the other arthropods and how some of our biases human biases color the way in which we research and look at this topic We're joined by Dr. Catherine Scott, who studies black widow spiders and their reproductive strategies, and she is also featured in the upcoming documentary film titled Bug Sex, which will appear on CBC's The Nature of Things Friday, March 10th at 9 p.m. and on CBC Gym. I think there's going to be a replay on Saturdays at 3 and Sundays at 1 p.m. So Dr. Scott joined us to talk about these crazy strategies that she that she highlighted in the film from Male Black Widows and some stuff that wasn't that didn't make it into the documentary. But needless to say, a big theme of what's going on is bug sex is wildly complicated. There's lots of different strategies and even within the same species, no one individual might employ the same strategy. We often think of bugs as having these very hard evolutionarily wired genes eye view kind of strategies just do whatever it takes to get all of your genes into the next uh, generation regardless if you get eaten etc 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 but there's a lot more complexity going on and again a big theme of the conversation and of the film bug sex is these biases that we have they talk about how for a long time people only studied male behavior. There was a male bias. Uh, most of the researchers were male back in the, you know, early 19th and 20th century, but also just our human biases in thinking about uh, gender roles and these kind of things, just whatever it is, we all have biases that we bring to the table. But we discuss how certain species uh, can change these gender roles, even within a season, according to the different environment uh, that they find themselves in, food availability, things like this. So it's really eye-opening to see uh, the breadth of possibilities. And We also discuss a little bit about, well, you know, what does this tell us about other species? What does this tell us about, you know, sex in general or courtship, these kind of things? And it's not always so straightforward that you can take what we learn in one species and bring it to another, especially a distantly related species like bugs and mammals. But what it shows us is that there's a lot of factors that go into mating, environment, Uh, resource availability, the strategies of the male and the female, bug anatomy is wild in this sense, Uh, communication. Uh, We talked about spiders using webs to communicate uh, and different pheromones. The point being that bugs, arthropods, make up a, a majority of life on the planet. So understanding how the majority of life on the planet goes about these basic functions of life is going to be useful information. And I think that that's kind of the takeaway, is that we all have to do these processes. Life is all about eating, reproducing, defense. Like we all do the same things. So understanding how a large majority of life does that, and especially the factors that influence how they evolve to do the things they do, is just insightful about life in general. So even if you didn't think of yourself as a bug person, as my guest Catherine Scott talks about, she hated spiders before she started researching them. This will be an interesting episode uh, for the broader conversations about sexual strategy, sexual selection, and just how we bring our biases to science and why it's important then to communicate science so that we can kind of get over these biases. At the very end, uh, Dr. Scott talks about a really neat study she did uh, looking at the misinformation that's been spread about spiders online. You may have seen this one. It garnered some headlines a little while back. So I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation with uh, Dr. Catherine Scott. And please do tune into the documentary uh, on the CBC if you're if you're in Canada or you happen to have CBC Gem, the online service. It'll be on The Nature of Things, the long-running CBC documentary, science documentary program, The Nature of Things, uh, Friday, March 10th at 9 p.m., 9.30 in Newfoundland. For those of you in Canada, you'll know why that's funny. Um, and it's titled Bug Sex. It's Complicated. But of course, I have to say first, as always, please uh, subscribe wherever you're getting the show. Leave a review. Leave a comment. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at 2 Subscribing and leaving a review is the biggest thing you can do to help out the show. You can tell a friend about it. Uh, and we would really appreciate that. Also, please feel free to get in touch with the show. As always, email to you at gmail.com. And you can message us on either of the social media apps at 2 you on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you may have heard a lot about the deep fake audios going around where President Biden or President Obama or former President Trump are... Are, are saying things that you never thought they would say, but it sounds really, really real. Well, that's because audio uh, transcription is getting so good. And you know who else is really good at that? The Newsly app. The Newsly app, the all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android, which lets you pick all of the most trending articles, curating uh, topics and articles you want at any moment And it will read them to you in a natural human voice. That's right. Now, I don't think they have the option yet to have Obama read you your articles, but it's a natural sounding human voice. And it just goes to show you how good this technology is getting. And Newsly has used it for not to just make some cheap dumb jokes, but to make the entire web listenable for the first time all in one place. Like I said, browse your articles, curate your articles, and then just have the Newsly app read them to you. We all hate reading. I say it every time I do this pitch. That's why you're listening to podcasts, right? Uh, Follow the topics you like, find your articles, get them read to you out loud. Newsly also has podcasts. You can explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries, and we're there too. We are on the Features tab. If you open up the Features tab on the Newsly app, you will see us. Um, And they have digital radio. Let's not forget about digital radio. So you can download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me. Newsly Newsly is spelled N-E-W-S-L-Y dot M-E, or from the link that I will put in the show notes. Uh, If you use the promo code 2Brad, capital T-W-O, capital B-R-A-D, all one word, 2Brad, uh, that will also be in the description, you can receive a one-month premium subscription to the Newsly app. It's a really neat service. It's a really neat idea. A lot of us don't have time to sit and read all of the articles that we do. If you look at my, my browser tab or my Twitter Booksmart tab, it's just filled with articles that I want to read that I mostly never get around to doing. But I yet I always find time to listen to my podcast. So Newsly is helping with that by reading these articles to me. So I just take a, a slice of time when I would normally be listening to a podcast uh, doing the dishes, uh, doing chores, uh, running, something like this, exercise, you know what I'm talking about. Check out the Newsly app. You can download it for free now from www.newsly.me. All right, with that, let's get into Black Widow Spiders and Bug Sex with Dr. Catherine Scott. So, Catherine, thank you so much uh, for joining me today uh, on the show. we got a lot to talk about. We have the the bug sex movie that's going to be coming on uh, March 10th on the CBC. Uh, You do a lot of different science communication stuff, and you do a lot of different interesting uh, research with spiders. I wanted to start with kind of a bit of an anecdote from my uh, career as a a researcher, uh, studying uh, uh, organisms that a lot of people find icky which is, you know, bugs and spiders are included in that. So I studied parasites as we kind of just discussed uh, off air. But something came up in the movie uh, for you where you described yourself as not liking spiders and then doing research and, and becoming really into, into spiders. And I always thought the same thing. I still kind of think the same thing about parasites. I find them very fascinating, and I love talking about them and love studying them, but I simultaneously find them disgusting. And I think parasites is a little, you know, they're internal, they're a little more, you know, nefarious than just bugs. So I feel like bugs, spiders, we can give them a bit more leeway, we can be gentler, we don't have to call them disgusting. They play important roles. But just that dynamic of, you know, these things are creepy crawly, they're kind of, uh, but yet they're so fascinating. So maybe with that launching point, you can tell us about your your origin story, uh, researching spiders.
1: Sure thing, yeah. So I was terrified of spiders for most of my my young life up until I was uh, in university. And I only began studying them sort of through a happy coincidence or accident. So I was in a invertebrate zoology class and the professor actually was arachnophobic and normally there was a section on arachnids but uh, he ended up being sick and having to skip a class and so he was more than happy to skip the <laughs> lecture on arachnids and uh, and leave that for yeah, us to learn mean, on our right? own but i was lucky <laughs> i was lucky to have uh, a ta in the lab named uh, samantha Viber who brought some spiders into the laboratory to show us and uh, at the end of the course she sent an email around to the students advertising a summer research position working with her on her PhD project which was studying the vibratory communication system of black widows and hobo spiders and up until that point I had never really thought carefully about spiders and what they do because I found them disgusting and creepy and scary and it had never occurred to me that spiders communicate with one another let alone using vibrations and so I was like wow this is that sounds really cool and actually in a previous life this was my second go-round with with undergraduate education. I had started off uh, as a mathematics and engineering student so I had actually taken courses on mm-hmm. vibrations and on signals and and sort of signal theory and the mathematics behind that. So I thought, oh, actually, I might have something to offer um, for this job, studying uh, vibrations and and signals. And my my goal in in taking these biology classes was to get into a graduate program doing research in biology. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I maybe wanted to be a mathematical biologist because I really enjoyed math. Um, But I thought "I, I need experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing research in order to uh to get into grad school so i applied for the job and i figured i would just have to deal <laughs> with my fear if i got it uh and i have i have a history of doing this i i i was uh, taught by force <laughs> to to face my fears directly as a child like when uh when we would put up the the Christmas lights. In, in the winter, uh, both my dad and, and my older brother, who whose job it normally was, are afraid of heights. And I'm terrified of heights, but when, as soon as they could get away with uh, pinning the job on me and sending me up the ladder to put up the high height, the high uh, Christmas lights, I would end up doing that. And I, so I, I thought, you know, I can deal with being on a high ladder, even though I'm afraid of heights. I can deal with working with spiders, even though I'm afraid of spiders. But I ended up getting the job. And as soon as I started thinking about spiders, looking at them closely and learning about their behavior and and being in the same room with them and and realizing that they're not a threat to me, um I very quickly fell in love with them and that changed the course of my life cuz for the over over a decade now I have been almost entirely focused on spiders and learning about their communication systems, their sexual behavior, their ecology and um and I also almost immediately switched to telling everyone that I could how spiders aren't <laughs> scary. They're not out to get us. They don't bite us in our sleep, and they're they're really important uh, members of of every ecosystem in which they occur, which is every terrestrial ecosystem yeah, yeah, on
0: yeah. Earth. I mean, it's 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 a cool story. I always like hearing people's origin stories when it comes to research because like everybody I talk to on this podcast that's a researcher has some kind of you know it's never a clear trajectory right to where you are and so i always like to hear those stories and that's really cool that it's like you know the serendipity of having studied this this math uh, field that would then apply to this is really neat. I also think it's hilarious that you yeah. went from not liking spiders to going to research like black widows, which is like the scariest one, right?
1: <laughs> yes, it was sort of zero to 100. And, and it was, you know, they're, they're, the treatment for arachnophobia is right. exposure yeah. therapy. And so I, I think of this kind of as a really extreme self-imposed exposure therapy going from being terrified of spiders to working in a room full of black widows and, and feeding them and, and, uh, handling them and that kind of thing. I also wanted to come back to your, your comment about you being (laughs) grossed out by, by parasites. So as an arachnologist, I've primarily studied spiders, which is actually Mm. a Uh, but I've also done some work with other arachnids like pseudoscorpions and ticks and mites. And I have to say, I do not love ticks. <laughs> i I can appreciate them. I think some of them are very beautiful, But when I get a tick on me, I freak out. I yeah. do not like that. even though I know, even you know, working with them in the lab in a controlled environment where where they I knew they weren't going to bite me, I understand their biology and and that I wasn't going to be harmed by them uh I still am I'm creeped out by them and out in the world when I'm bitten by a tick I'm like ah yeah, get it off yeah, get yeah. it
0: off well I mean parasites they have that that extra connotation that extra negative connotation you know I think and it, you know the ticks in the wild you got to be careful with different you know Lyme disease and all these different things that you can so let's we'll give you a pass on that one for sure uh but I think it's cool as well that like the curiosity of something is enough to overcome that fear or for me too like the disgust like i didn't didn't necessarily enjoy opening up intestines and pulling out worms and stuff like that you know but there was something there and for me it was on undergraduate invertebrate zoology class as well that, that that sparked the interest um that it's just it's worth it to 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 go through and so the spider stuff i mean you're talking about the communication and we could talk about maybe let's jump to the the movie uh, and your bit in the movie. And then you you told me that there's a bit there's a bit that maybe got cut on the editing room floor that we can discuss. But what is it like? Maybe in general terms that you're looking at the communication thing is fascinating to me. That there's vibrations on the webs that they're speaking with. Um, I'll throw it to you there. I just kind of threw a bunch of stuff at you, but...
1: Yeah, so, yes. Um, my master's degree, which was at Simon Fraser University, uh, was focused on Black Widows. So I was this undergraduate assistant for for Samantha, my mentor. And then, of course, I, I wanted to do my own project after working with her over the summer. We were focused on vibratory communication in Black Widows and hobo spiders. And then I continued the work on black widows, Um, what what Sam and I did was use a laser to measure the the vibratory signals that are transmitted through the spider's web. And you'll actually see that in the film. Um, Andrew Mason at U of T is kind of the expert Mm -hmm. on on this and and has done a lot of work on black widows and other spiders and how they communicate using vibrations. So that was really cool. And we were able to record the vibrations produced by males and by prey insects and sort of understand what the male is doing to announce his present on the presence on the web and tell the female, I'm a male of the same species as you, not a prey item. Please don't attack me. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So so my very first job was kind of trying to decipher the the vibratory language of these spiders. And then as a master's student in the same lab, I started working on their chemical communication system. So one of the the things that really fascinated me about spiders and why I love them um, is is because they kind of challenge my my human biases and the way I perceive the world because they're so different from us. And that's one of the things that makes them scary, but it also makes them really fascinating when you start mm-hmm. to uh, to understand them better. So most web building spiders, including black widows, have extremely poor vision. So their their world, is their view, so to speak is very different from ours mm-hmm. they kind of can get, detect light and dark and shadows and movement and things like that but th- but they're not seeing images of the world their sensory world is dominated by uh, chemicals so their sm- sense of te- smell and taste and vibrations and so when they are on the web they're using vibrations to detect prey to um to speak to one another but when they're off the web, they're more or less reliant on their sense of smell. And so my master's work was trying to understand the uh, the chemical signal, the sort of personal ad that the female applies to her silk that uh, that sends an airborne message to the male that allows him to detect that there's a sexually receptive female somewhere out there and navigate towards her. And... We we did work on you know trying to understand what the chemicals are in this signal and also some of the male's behavior around this. So so one of my favorite studies from from that work was we uh, we put females in mesh cages out in the field and so they're sorry the females weren't in there. So we were, we were isolating the web and that's where the, the pheromone is actually applied onto the silk. And so we Mm -hmm. had these sort of pheromone traps that we put out onto, onto the beach where we were studying black widows that were a mesh cage with a, a web inside. Uh, and we waited to see, you know, if males would arrive and we were able to collect lots of males in that experiment. Um, I should back up and say I also did work in the laboratory just to kind of try to understand their courtship behavior, what the male does when he arrives on the web. And he does this whole song and dance uh, that's like literally dancing on the web, plucking strings, sending sending vibratory messages Hmm. to the female. But then he also does this thing, which is kind of strange, where he starts destroying the web. He moves around and every once in a while he'll stop and he'll bite the silk and he'll kind of make a hole in the web and then bundle it up and and wrap it with his own silk. And in some cases, after half an hour or so, most of the web is gone and has been bundled up by the male. And the female hmm. seems to tolerate this, which is kind of weird. So I was like, OK, maybe this is this is a signal. Maybe the male applying his silk to the female's web is sending his own uh, chemical signal to her, giving her information about his quality as a mate or this kind of thing. Um, But in the field, we compared the attractiveness of intact webs to webs that had been reduced by males and showed that actually the function of this turns out to be that the male is shutting down the female's attractive signal so that other males can't find her.
0: Right. To get exclusive access, all yes. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so
1: so the first, it's these spiders, their their mating system is such that they're, it's very competitive. If you're a male, there's lots more males than there are females. And it's literally a race to be the first male to arrive at a female's web and mate with her. So if you're the first male to arrive, it's in your best interest to uh, shut down that signal so other males can't find her. and And then you are able to mate with her and if you're the first male to mate, also you're, you're you'll have first male sperm precedence. So the female will will use your sperm first, and you also have the opportunity to deposit a mating plug. Um, so these <laughs> spiders have have these long corkscrew shaped intromittent organs that they insert into the female's genital tract, and they're able to break off the tip. And if they break it off in just the right location, it will block access. To subsequently mating males, so there's there's all these mm-hmm. different levels of competition. Like first, there's the race to be there first, and then um, and then there's sperm competition inside the female's genital tract. Um, but later on, when I was doing my my PhD work, I with Mediane Andrade at U of T, I wanted to continue studying these spiders because I found their their mating system and their communication so fascinating. In that work, we ended up finding out that males can overcome the the sort of that first male shutting down the female's signal making her harder to find turns out males have a way around that so this race to find females is is really fun to to observe and we actually did an experiment that we called the great black widow race uh during my phd my partner was my field assistant and we spent a lot of of long nights out uh on the beach, um, racing spiders. So this involved (laughs) those same mesh cages with females inside put out uh, in a row as as the finish line for the race course. So these Mm -hmm. are pheromone-emitting cages. And then we had a a whole whack of male Black Widows that we had collected in advance, and we weighed them in on a tiny little scale, and we painted them with individual racing stripes and measured them so that we knew how big they were, and so that we could follow each individual male and and record his time in the race because we wanted to know you know what what traits and tactics make a male a winner in the race to find females and so for this experiment we had these teams of males that we released at 10 meter intervals along this race course that was set up uh so that the the finish line was at one end we we knew that the wind was forecast to blow in a certain direction and so then we were releasing the males uh, upwind of the females so that they would be able to, to travel towards them uh, right. and navigate based on, on detecting her pheromones. And we found in that experiment that males were able to detect females from really incredible distances up to 60 meters away, which if you consider this male black widow spider is maybe a centimeter long, that's a really long distance Yeah. Um, for, for a, if you scaled up to human size that would be like smelling a a another human um kilometers away <laughs> so so they have a very very uh finely tuned sense of smell for detecting a potential mate and so during the race they all ran down the beach towards towards these signaling females and we were able to record their speeds and and learn that uh what was it Larger males were, were better at surviving and actually finishing the race, but smaller males were faster. So there's mm. there's kind of a trade-off there, Trade and maybe off, intermediate yeah. males end up being the, the most successful. But the really strange thing we found was that the males who we released farthest away from the females, and we released them all at approximately the same time, Ended up finding the females fastest. They ended up, um, you know, having the overall fastest race times, and there that wasn't something we predicted. That wasn't there wasn't an obvious reason why that should be, but right. when we looked closer at the behavior of these spiders as they're moving around searching for females, we noticed that when a male is uh, Searching for a mate, what he'll do is he'll kind of wander along on the ground and then he'll bump into a grass stem or some other vegetation and he'll climb up it. And then when he gets to the top, he pauses and he waves his first pair of legs in the air. And if you're familiar with the idea of a questing tick, it's mm-hmm. very similar behavior. He's He's got sensory organs on the ends of his legs that detect chemicals. And so he's waving his legs in the air slowly and kind of rotating his body and tasting the air and getting his bearings, getting a read on where that female signal is coming from. And once he's kind of figured out where she is, he then climbs back down and moves in that direction. And then periodically he'll climb back up. Vegetation again, you know, reorient make sure he's and going so the on. Right, yeah exactly and when he's doing this spiders are constantly uh, producing drag line silk they leave this trail of silk behind them as a safety line so as he climbs up the the plant he'll um, anchor his silk at the top and then he'll climb down and when he climbs climb up the plant leave a brooch of silk behind him and so this will essentially create a, uh, a path from where he was to where he ends up at the female's web. And we notice that when another male is wandering around uh, trying to find a female, if he encounters the silk trail of another male, he doesn't bother with stopping and, you know, getting his bearings and figuring out where to go next. He just runs along the silk of <laughs> that previous male. And so he's taking advantage of the fact that that first male has already done the work of finding right. the female. And he just runs along that line as fast as he can towards the female. And we did some experiments to show that he, he is he's able to recognize that yes, this is the silk of a male of the same species as me. So this is a relevant Um, this is relevant information to me that is very likely going to lead me to a female quickly and so then he's able to sort of use that to catch up and that was the reason in our big race that the males that were farthest away ended up being fastest because they were more likely to encounter the silk trails of all the males who had started the race closer to the female and then just run along these silk highways so um that was one of the things that didn't actually make it into the film. Uh, we yeah. we ended up talking more about uh, sort of the mechanics of sex, and and there is some some cool footage of the males doing that orientation thing and about their chemical mm-hmm. communication. But uh, yeah, that that was definitely one of my uh, favorite experiments to do the black widow race.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love it because, I mean, I did field work too with, with ants and painting ants and watching where they go. And so like, so I I appreciate the meticulous nature of that and how fun it can actually be. Yes. It can also be heartbreaking.
1: Oh my gosh. So that, that, you know, those results I just talked about were a success, but there were a couple other times where we went to all the effort of collecting the spiders and weighing them and measuring them and painting them. And we released a hundred spiders and we recaptured zero because there was yeah. no wind that night. <laughs>
0: and they just took off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, This is also really interesting because, you know, you talked about like, and this is what's fascinating for me too, like having studied evolution and stuff too, is like the different areas that, you know, selection acts on, you know, there's the sperm competition and, you know, the, the whole like breaking off of the the parts into the to block. Like, I mean, there's a number of different, Species and insects that have these male plugs, right? Yeah. Um, and then this, but then also this, you know, the race, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you, the, the, I always think of it, you know, it was termed one time in my biology class, like the evolution of cheaters. Sure. Right. Like, and you, yeah, when you think about it, like almost like a competition and stuff, there's yeah. obviously a lot more going on, but that's really fascinating. This, this evolution of cheaters. Presumably, the spider he races along the, the, the web, the male's web, he's going to have to overtake them at some point right if he still wants to be first so he's got to get there catch up and then overtake them
1: yeah i mean do they fight necessarily yeah so so yes that's exactly what what's going to happen so he he may not overtake him before they reach the female's web but even if that male who left the trail behind um arrives first that doesn't mean he's going to mate first because courtship takes a long time it's very elaborate there's a lot of this dance and yeah and uh in the laboratory it can be relatively quick but we usually have the heat cranked up pretty high in the lab and that was another thing that i realized in the field initially i thought i was going to observe courtship in the field it's like watching paint dry because (laughs) when the temperature is like 10 degrees celsius arthropods which are our ectotherms are very very slow you know, and so everything is speeded up in the lab when you've got the temperature on high in in the field. I think it probably takes hours and hours and hours um, for the male to to do his courtship and, and convince the female to mate with him. So that gives the second male time to catch up. And then absolutely, they will fight on the web and it can be quite uh, aggressive. Sometimes males lose legs. Mm-hmm. And then also just because the male has arrived on the web, doesn't mean he's going to convince the female to mate with him. She could still reject him. She could she could right. uh eat him before he gets a chance to attempt to mate, um or she could just, you know, not be interested, take a really long time, uh, you know, allow him to to dance on the web for hours and hours, which could give other males a chance to catch up and and arrive on the web and end up being being the first to mate.
0: Yeah, end up being more suitable because that's kind of interesting then because it's like you think of like, you know, where are you going to invest your, your your time and resources, right? So it actually seems like it's more beneficial or it's a better bet to race to, you know, to, to do this cheating sort of whatever we want to mm-hmm. call it behavior of just following someone who's already done the work and then hoping that you can outcompete them at the moment
1: yes rather yeah. than trying to and, find
0: like a, a totally naive you know web with no other males it's kind of counterintuitive
1: yeah that there's so much competition there's so few few risk of females and so many males that you're going to probably encounter competition no matter what so so speed is is really valuable but there are definitely there are different strategies and tactics that males can use to be successful so and it might depend on that individual male's uh, phenotype. So you know what he looks like, what his his characteristics are. Because mm-hmm. if you're a big male who is better at surviving um, long distance searching, and maybe you're not as as fast, but you're going to have an advantage in combat with other males. And, fighting, and yeah. females also tend to like larger males. So okay. so so there's again trade-offs right maybe you're not as fast but you're more likely to survive the journey which is the name of the game doesn't you know if you're fast but you die then there's no point (laughs) uh (laughs) and you're going to be more successful in in direct competition with rival males and maybe with convincing the female to mate if you're a small male maybe you don't have much um fighting ability but you can be fast and you can try to race to find a female, um, you know, take advantage of those silk trails, even though there's going to be another male on that web when you get there. Small males also have a cheating tactic called sneaking, where they can, you know, the first male, this is another example of sort of parasitizing the effort of a rival male. Mm-hmm. So that first male might have arrived and put a lot of time and energy into courting and doing vibrations. Um, you know, putting silk on the web, all of these things. And then a smaller male, in some cases, can just swoop in and walk right up to the female and mate with her without bothering to do any of that courtship stuff. Uh, she may or may not accept him, but if the if the bigger male has kind of already put her into a state where she's like, oh, the, you know, I like this this male has yeah. courted me enough that i'm going to become receptive they enter a kind of trance like quiescent state when they're ready to mate mm-hmm. where they where they aren't as uh aren't as likely to sort of move around and and kick the male off so so yeah so that those smaller males might might be able to to sneak copulations once they've copulated, it, it still might not be sort of a slam dunk strategy because the female might not let him copulate as long. She might not let him place a sperm plug. She might only let him copulate once rather than twice and sort of fill mm-hmm. only one sperm storage organ. So again, it's like there's there's pros and cons of these different strategies for being a male, being, being big, being small, uh, following other males, trying to... Um, trying to find a uh, a female that other males haven't found yet and so on it's it's all very complicated
0: yeah and i mean it's it's really interesting because you think about all the different you know we always think about evolution right as like trade-offs right so there's all these different trade-offs to the different strategies and this is why you have all these different strategies right because sometimes it works like it works enough <laughs> each one works enough that it's continued in the in the in the population in the lineage right but I wonder, Rich. just like this is maybe a bit too much of an extrapolation kind of thing, but studying this kind of stuff, these sort of sexual pressures, uh, sexual selection, and stuff like that, um, what what is some is there some kind of broad takeaways you can get from? Because people will always, you know, cynical people will always ask, "Well, who cares, right? It's spiders. Who cares, right?" But is there kind of like a larger thing you can say about you know mating and and mate choice and and stuff like this that? That maybe you know you make, or it's a tough one.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, people people often ask me, you know, what what good is that? Uh, what you know, what I study? <laughs> yeah. what What's the point? And um, for me, it's you know, it's not because it has immediate benefits to humans, um, or or applications. Although you never know, right? The basic mm-hmm. science that leads to um, innovations that are valuable for humans is is usually not not meant for that right like you it's not evident at the time yeah you you do the basic science you just find out what's going on for the sake of finding it out and then later on it might turn out that that there's um something useful is 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 going to come out of that but uh yeah the for me the reason i'm doing it is just because it's fascinating and i think it's valuable to learn about way the world works and Mm -hmm. you know i see these spiders doing these things and i want to know why just for the sake of knowing why um there certainly is value in in studying spiders for understanding you know more broadly the evolution of sexual behavior and communication and and if we Mm -hmm. only focus on animals that are like us you know vertebrates there's tons and tons of sexual selection research on birds and mammals particularly. Um, But they are in the minority in terms of the, the biodiversity on earth, right? Insects and spiders are far more diverse and abundant. Um, You know, the, they Peter Neskreke or no, sorry, it's not him. Is it him who, who called them the smaller majority, you know, Mm. like they're, they're the majority of, of life on earth. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah right? And so, so it's it's important to study them and realize how diverse sexual strategies are, you know? The, mm-hmm. the widow spiders, um, I study black widows in North America, which don't do this, but their relatives, the redback spiders in Australia, which maybe Anne Andrade is famous for studying, um, because they do sexual cannibalism, kind of those those weird examples um, help us to to there they're these exceptions these things that that animals that aren't following the rules um can teach us a lot and you know you have to you have to spend time with very obscure animals that are that are different from us to to learn how diverse and weird and wonderful the world really is. And I, I talked before about how, you know, I find spiders challenge my biases as a human. You know, scientists like to think that we're very objective, but <laughs> we are humans, right? And we see mm-hmm. the world with through our human eyes and, and we have ideas about how things work. And so one of the things that that um, is brought up several times in, in the film about bug sex is this idea that, you know, for years and years, humans have, have assumed, you know, these are the sex roles you know females choose males compete and that's the way it is right um but but these views of how biology works are really colored by our human biases and our views of of sex roles and so when you when you spend time with the insects and spiders you realize that sort of all bets are off they they do everything all different kinds of ways um their sex lives are so diverse and it's you know even the idea of sex roles um it's kind of it is it's it's you can't map it on to to a binary like like people want to right Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so so and just like for an example of of the diversity of the ways that that insects and spiders do things that are you know shocking to people i i you know spiders and insects their sex lives are you know far more kinky and and weird <laughs> than humans could ever conceive of you know there are plenty of of arthropods where males have penis-like intermittent organs that they insert into females but that's that's just one way of doing things there are also mm-hmm. some insects where the female has a penis-like intermittent organ that she <laughs> inserts into the male in order to uh, to get sperm. Extract, yeah. Yeah, there there are there are are animals that uh, that don't bother with um, with intromission at all. The female will sort of, or sorry, the the it, it's all external. So the male will deposit a spermatophore on the ground, and the female has to sort of pick it up with her genital opening um and then of course some insects and and arachnids don't have to bother with sex at all they can reproduce asexually so there's Mm -hmm. there's incredible diversity of of the ways of having sex of um communicating with with one another through all of these different modalities and um I don't know if I'm doing a very good ans- good job of actually answering your question but but the point is it's you know I think it's fascinating it's worth studying to to just understand how how amazing and and diverse the the natural world is
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think it makes sense what you said. I mean, I, I'm anyone that's listened to my podcast or heard me, you know, rant about this over a beer or something, like basic research is absolutely essential, right? You, you just, you never know where it's going to go. So I right with you that I totally agree, you know, basic research for the sake of doing it is 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 enough. But then also that the understanding how the majority of life on the planet, like let's say the majority insects, you know, a massive group of life on the planet operates, like that just gives us a better understanding of life and our planet. And like, that's good knowledge to have, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I was just gonna say that um, people studying insects and, you know, the way that they look and why are they shiny like this? You know, that that basic research of just understanding their morphology has led to all kinds of of valuable um, innovations and, and the same thing is, is true of studying spider uh, silks mm-hmm. and venoms, where you know the basic research of just you know understanding the building blocks, you know what are these things? what are they made of? why do they work, has led to the development of drugs and, um, and medical devices and things like that. So you you don't know when you start what's going to be, Um, have you know applications and benefits for humans but also I agree with you I think it's super important to fund basic research and and just do this curiosity driven Mm -hmm. uh, research to understand the Mm -hmm. the world and and why things are the way they are and but I think too
0: the with the spider stuff that you're talking about specifically I mean the idea, you know, we talk about our biases and how, you know, in the film, they talk about how you don't look at most people just looked at it from the male point of view, you know, and, and didn't really understand female behavior till, you know, sort of now, all the different things you learn there. But the communication thing, animals that communicate in ways that are totally foreign to us, I think is just absolutely fascinating. And you could see, like I can see, I'm just kind of off the top of my head. I wouldn't be surprised to one day hear some kind of application for the way you communicate through silk, you know, like the vibration, you know, like you can see that there might be some kind of odd application for that or Absolutely. the pheromone Yeah. The, and... uh,
1: the ways that these things are, are these, these animals are, they have evolved over, over millions of years, these exquisitely tuned Sensory receptors that that are extremely sensitive to vibrations, Mm -hmm. which are sounds and and chemicals, and I'm sure there are applications for that of, you know, extremely sensitive and extremely specific uh, chemical receptors and and uh, vibratory receptors right and and one of the one of the limitations with with spider silk so far is like there's there's all kinds of cool things that you could do with it it's an amazing material because it's incredibly strong and flexible we still haven't figured out how mm-hmm. to make it? We know what the building blocks are. We can make the ingredients. We can make the goo that uh, that that is inside the spider's silk glands. um so We can make all the precursors to spider silk, but the the specific way that they extrude it through their spinnerets, humans haven't been able yeah. to replicate yet. But I'm sure it's yeah. I'm sure it's coming. It
0: seems a matter of time. But yeah, that's one because I remember like hearing stuff you know, 10, 15 years ago, too, about how they were going to genetically alter like goats to produce the silk and stuff. And it's like, okay, you get it. But now what you can't, you can't work with it. You can't, <laughs> you can't spin it. Yeah. You can't
1: spin it. Um,
0: yeah. Okay, this is all really interesting. there's a couple things uh, that I wanted that I wanted to hit. And I'll see if I remember them all. But the idea of studying the outliers too as a way to kind of get this information or get a, a unique take on on mm-hmm. you know the rest of life, right, is really fascinating to me. And you mentioned the the uh, the cannibalism, the sexual cannibalism. That's mm-hmm. an outlier, but I think that most people we just assume that that's how bugs do it, right? Like you hear the stories about the praying mantis and the stuff like that. So, what are maybe some other right kind of maybe misconceptions or something about? spiders or insects that that you that you find most people have
1: when i tell people that i study black widows certainly the the thing that everyone knows about them is that the female eats the male after sex and that's that's the kind of the common misconception because it's it's actually quite rare that male black widows get eaten so i mentioned the redback spiders so those they're widow spiders they're close relatives of the black widows that we have in north america there's another species called the brown widow um, that occurs worldwide it's kind of an invasive species now um in these two species the male apparently actively sacrifices Mm. himself during copulation so this isn't it's not that the female is um attacking him the male actually offers (laughs) himself and he as he's transferring sperm the, the, the spiders are kind of face to face in in what we would consider yeah. like missionary position um that's the kind of their their typical mating s- position for for widow spiders and then as he's transferring sperm he does a somersault and he he pivots his body and puts his abdomen right in front of the female's fangs and offers himself to her and then she starts nibbling on him as he's transferring sperm. And it turns out that this is beneficial to the male because if the female snacks on him during copulation, he's able to copulate for longer and transfer more sperm and end up fathering more offspring. So that's that's the name of the game is passing your genes on to future generations. So he's gonna have more offspring. He's gonna be uh, more fit than a male who survives. This is counterintuitive, right? Because when we think about fitness, when you learn about um, about natural selection, you 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 hear about the survival mm-hmm. of the fittest, which is um, also a misconception, right? It's 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 about survival, but it's mm-hmm. more about reproduction. If you if you don't reproduce, survival means nothing, then yeah. it's game over. So you have to survive long enough to reproduce. And so these males, they have survived, they're mating, and now. They're, they're going to benefit from transferring as many sperm as they can to this female and fertilizing as many of her eggs as possible because after they're finished mating her, their chances of finding another male another female to mate with mm-hmm. are essentially zero. So they're putting all of their sperm in one basket, kind of maximizing their their fitness by, by making sure this female will will use as many of their sperm as possible. Um, so so yeah, so in this species, sexual selection has has resulted in this seemingly you know bizarre behavior why would a male allow himself to be killed that's mm-hmm. not good for his fitness but mm-hmm. it turns out that it is um and uh the brown widows do this too and the the female sometimes doesn't accept you know the male might do the somersault and then she just no i'm not hungry <laughs> doesn't eat him so so it's not the it's the, the idea that these females are like these aggressive sexual cannibals is is a bit of a misconception. And then when you come back to the North American Black Widows, um, females sometimes males, but it's a lot rarer than Mm -hmm. most people assume. It's not the case that the female always eats the male after mating. It's more common that when the male first arrives on the web, if she finds him wanting, if he doesn't, uh, vibrate the web just the right way to convince her that uh, that he is a a worthy mate or if she mistakes him for a prey or she's just really hungry and you know yeah. she's she would benefit more at that yeah, moment from a meal yeah. than than a mating <laughs> then then the male just mm-hmm. might get eaten right away without without any opportunity to mate um, occasionally the male the female will attack the male uh, during mating that's extremely rare I think I've only seen that once in the western black widows that I've studied and um, like in general in you know over a decade of studying these, these animals I've only seen sexual cannibalism a handful of times it's quite rare and I think the initial idea that uh, that black widows are cannibals occurred because people would do these experiments in the laboratory they would have the female in a container they would put the male in the container he would do his thing they would mate and then the male so is trapped go, yeah. in the container with the female <laughs> <laughs> right they're actually very yeah. good at escaping so you know even if the female is hungry and she wants to eat the male usually he's just he's out of there he's he's able to uh, to get away so the, the work that I did in the field, I found that some males were able to visit um, two or three females over the course of their light, life and mate more than one time. So this is a different mating system from the redbacks, which are kind of like, you know, they only have one shot. They're They're very unlikely to find more than one female in their life. The population i studied of these western black widows in british columbia um, it's very dense there's the females are quite closely spaced together that makes a difference and and the males can survive and Mm -hmm. mate multiple times that's always interesting to me
0: uh it it brings up some things about you know how environment your population density all of these things play a role in the in the selection or the evolution of the behavior right like if you if there's enough females around, mm-hmm. in a, you know, in your space, you wouldn't necessarily want to give yourself just the one shot and then try and maximize that one shot by allowing yourself to be eaten. Right. So that's really interesting to me. And I think it's like, I don't know, this might be a bit of a outside the, the scope of our conversation, really. But it's something that I've been thinking about a lot uh, in recent times is, you know, the genes eye view of sort of evolution and stuff or there's, you know, beginning to be a larger group of biologists that talk about you know the other ways in which selection can work and and get passed on and stuff but a lot of times we think about these things we reduce it down to this gene's eye view maximum benefit you know get as mm-hmm. much you know sperm into the next generation whatever things like this and it's I wonder if we have a bit of a bias when we look at insects in this way because they tend to like that tends to be what you see first, right? Is these like very dramatic and kind of stark? Got to get it, you know. I'm gonna get eaten, but it's okay, you know that kind of thing. You, yeah, you kind of see where I'm going there.
1: <laughs> and and I think yeah, and you bring up a good point about the environment um, and the effect that it has on um, the sort of behaviors and and tactics that are going to be successful because. It's it's a lot of time in, you know, in biology class when you're learning about uh, selection, you will you will hear things about how, you know, oh selection favors mm-hmm. large males um, because they're able to survive Stronger, better or yeah, yeah. or fight better or whatever you have, whatever the case may be. But that could be context dependent. Um, and, and it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And I want to, um, mention Daryl Gwynn, who's in the film, um, in the segment about dance flies, which is really awesome because they're, they're an example of these sex role reversed insects that are the opposite of the way that we Mm -hmm. think is typical of course what we think is typical is you know based on what we choose to study and our preconceptions of 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 what's normal so to speak um but he actually studied these really cool insects um that are and I'm not going to say the species <laughs> because I, I'll get it wrong but um an insect that is typically um has typical sex roles so males compete for females but over the course of a season he found that though that could be reversed and you could get males or sorry females competing for males depending on the environment depending on the availability of food because this is a species where um, the male gives mm-hmm. the female a nuptial gift and so so if there's if the situation is such that Females are not getting enough food. They end up starting to compete for males in order to get these um, nutrient-rich nuptial gifts, rather than the males competing for females. And and over the course of a season, and over the course of or over the over the landscape, depending on the density of food, depend depending on the density of males and females, you get this complete switch in sex roles in the exact mm-hmm. same population of insects even so it's like they're actually very flexible this idea that that you know this phenotype is best because um you know in at all times in all situations is is way too rigid way of mm-hmm. of looking at things and um yeah there's 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 so much to learn from from looking at the variation and that's another thing that as as biologists you know i all of the stuff i've done has been on a single population right. of black widows you know at a single place and they might not be typical yeah. of the species because the the density the the local environment might actually be weird relative to other populations and so it's way more complicated than than it at first appears mm-hmm. and um there's there's always going to be way more wrinkles to to discover and it's it's not as simple as as you read yeah well i think that's important so
0: it's we could move now to like i kind of thought we would get to here earlier but i'm really enjoying the conversation to sort of the science communication bit because it's like we talk about Mm -hmm. you know all these misconceptions that that people have and even biologists have right like you said we're all human right uh but you know you think about how evolution works and this sort of genes eye view, or, you know, people are like, well, they evolved to be this, you know, it was selected for this, so therefore it's good, right? But it's context dependent, like there's a lot of stuff going on. So mm-hmm. in talking about science communication, one of the things that that I think about, and that I've talked with other people about is trying to embrace that gray area and communicate that as, you know, the interesting thing but it's difficult because so many people, I think, when they go to do science communication, they're scientists. They don't want to sound wrong. They don't want to sound, you know, like they don't know what they're talking about or that we haven't got it all figured out. But it creates this weird, you know, expectation. I think for people outside of science, because then you get the flip side of that, where people are like, "Evolution is just a theory." You know, it's like, "Yeah, well, kind of," but you know. So it's like, how do you how do you go about do you, do you think about that and how do you how do you go about like? embracing the the messiness of it i guess or the gray area
1: definitely yeah so this is this is the major challenge of of science communication is is having a message that is clear but also not overstating what you know and and i i worry about this a lot because there's always caveats there's always exceptions and when when you're doing an interview you know um a uh, science journalist wants a, a quick sound bite, or you're trying to, you know, fit a message into a single tweet or something. It's really hard to get all the nuance, and if you, you know, if you spend if you spend too much time on the caveats, that then it kind the of message. takes away yeah. Yeah. from yeah. your main message, right? It's so so it's 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 a h- big big challenge, and I don't I can't <laughs> say that I've got it figured out, but I uh, I try to. I try to have a balance and and not to overstate things, um, but to, you know, to try to focus on a main take home message that is, that is true. But I do think, um, it's, it's a problem that people want, they want Mm -hmm. a firm answer, you know, and, and even like the way that communication is even in, in science textbooks and things, I think we, we end up making making statements and I think students will be familiar with this you know they'll they'll learn something in high school biology and then if they go on to university in their first year university class the the instructor might be like oh yeah well that was an oversimplification what you learned in high school wasn't really true it's actually this and then if you go on later into more um specific classes they'll be like yeah what you learned in in high school or in first year was an oversimplification it's actually more complicated than that so so we have this tendency to try to simplify things to make them clear, but then we're losing the nuance. We're losing the, uh, the interesting Mm -hmm. uh, outliers that that you were talking about before. So, so yeah, I I don't know what the answer is, but it is really important to, to be careful with the way that, that you're Mm -hmm. communicating science and, and I think, yeah, not to not to imply that this is the answer, because you know, any time that that I'm talking to uh, a journalist, it's usually because an interesting paper has just come out, and you know, that's one study at one time, and you know, next year I might I might have found something out that challenges that, or that or that uh, mm-hmm, that complicates mm-hmm. it, right? Like, and that, that's the thing. I think the problem is. The idea that science is is something that has a um, that you can complete, that you can say, yeah. "Okay, I've figured it out." you yeah. have never figured it out. There's always more yeah. to learn, right? And so I think that's maybe the the popular misconception is that like, oh, if it's in the textbook, then we know it's kind of done, and it's never done. I think that's maybe the be- the most important message to get across is that science is a process, and we're constantly learning new things and updating our yeah. understanding of the it's world. A,
0: it's an interest. It's I mean, it's a makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> and it feels like I I. I It feels like that should be more widely known, but I understand why people, especially when it comes Mm -hmm. to, you know, the stuff that we've seen with COVID and whatnot, like when you're human, when your health is involved, your family's health, like people want that answer, right? And a lot of times you can give that answer with good confidence, right? But there's always still, right? Like there's always like the the rare Mm -hmm. circumstances and stuff like that. But I always think about...
1: Yeah, and then things get updated. Like the next, you yeah. know, we we know more, and now we have to change our understanding of things because yeah. because we have a better understanding of how this thing works. And then people are upset because they're like, yeah. "Oh, well, were they lying to us before?" Like, no, it was we were doing the best we could with the information we had. Right. but we're constantly getting Which anyone getting more does in their
0: normal life. If you ever like, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be a functional he, ha- adult yeah. human being if you still believed everything that you you know. But anyway, I just wondered like right. Th- I feel like in a way, you know, for me trying to highlight the uncertainty and the and the 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 unknowns as cuz that's really why most researchers do research, right? Is for those you know, those that's where all the interesting stuff is is when we when you don't know, you know, you're like the tip sure. of the spear of knowledge. I think I've said that a million times on this podcast, but yeah, so I don't. know, It's just how do you find ways to tell stories that that highlight that too, right? Like it's it's good to have a settled, nice story about something that you found, but I feel like you know doing doing stories about this what we don't know is is yeah. is also really cool,
1: right? Well, and and also you know when when I I, I try to get this across to my students, um, either if I'm, I'm mentoring research students or or when I've uh, taught classes in biology, is that um, answering a question for me, you know, you you might observe something, you think, oh, that's really cool. And then you develop a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis. Most of the time, um, the answer that you get actually produces several more questions Mm -hmm. than you started with. Right. So it's like you've learned one thing, but actually now I have a whole bunch more questions because... Maybe it wasn't exactly what I thought was going to happen, and I noticed some, some things across uh, along the way that I wasn't expecting, and now I have a whole bunch more new hypotheses to test. So even, you know, every time we sort of, quote unquote, finish a research project and and get it published, at the end of that, there's usually um, at least the implication, if not if not explicitly stated, you know, now we need to look at mm-hmm. A, B, C, and D to figure out yeah. why this happened. Um it's never it's never done. We never have all the answers. And there's there's always I feel like it's your science is is successful when at the end of it you have Mm -hmm. you have more questions to to follow up
0: on. Agreed. (laughs) I, I can't add anything more there. Um okay, so I've I've had you for about an hour now, so we can kind of wrap it up now. There was a few other things I wanted to get to uh but we can save it for another time i guess or we can link it to in the show notes because you have a blog spider bites um you're on <laughs> twitter i, I believe you, twitter
1: Caterania. yep
0: okay yeah we'll we'll put all that in there too uh but yeah people can follow that because one of the cool psychon things you did too is the piece about uh the misconceptions and the media reporting on spiders which I found mm-hmm. really interesting. If you have time and you wanna give us a brief uh of that Yeah,
1: I can yeah, I can just talk a little bit about that. So so recently some colleagues and I did a paper about uh the the spread of misinformation about spiders on the internet. And this kind of started as a, a pandemic project. Um the the lead author, Stefano Mamola, had done a previous um, smaller version of this study in Italy where he's from uh, looking at how well the media does portraying spiders in, in news stories. And um, this is the thing that I've been interested in for a long time. And, and if you follow me on Twitter, not as often anymore, but but I used to spend quite a lot of time or people would send me articles about spiders and then I would debunk them right. because <laughs> um very often the the articles that people would send me about spiders would be wrong. They would contain um, incorrect information or they would be majorly overblown or sensationalized. Often stories about spider bites mm-hmm. contain no evidence whatsoever that there was <laughs> a spider involved. Uh, and so this, this makes me and my, my colleagues in Arachnology really frustrated. And so we decided uh, to do a global study to understand um, how good the the reporting about spiders is and what influences that. Mm-hmm. And we thought that um, this would also be a good opportunity to sort of understand, using spiders as a case study, sort of some things about how information spreads more generally. And uh, what we found was basically, unsurprisingly to us, uh, there is a lot of bad reporting on spiders, about 50% of, of the news articles contain errors and uh, a large proportion of them are sensationalized. And so that wasn't surprising. Um, but when we looked at what was driving these things, we scored each article on whether or not they had included a, an image and, and other, other variables. Um, But one of the key things we looked at was whether the journalist quoted an expert in the article. Mm -hmm. And that expert could be a medical professional. It could be um, a pest control person or a spider expert, like an actual arachnologist who has expertise in this area. And there was no effect of medical professionals or other experts on the um, on errors or sensationalism, but there was a really strong effect of speaking to arachnologists. So when stories quoted arachnologists, they were less sensationalized and they were more accurate. That's probably not surprising, Mm -hmm. but for me, this was the most encouraging part of the study because it means as an arachnologist, if I take the time to speak to a journalist, they're more likely to, to end up writing a story that's accurate and not sensationalized and the other part of this that we we learned was that the sensationalism is what drives the global spread of information. You know, a story is published in one place locally, and then it get picks, gets picked up all around the world. That's more likely to happen when it's overly sensationalized. Right. And so this kind of, we have the power uh as as you know if you're the local arachnologist and and we're we're hoping to put together kind of a database of arachnologists who are willing to talk to journalists so that if you're a journalist in toronto you can see oh there's a list of people you know in ontario who i can call who are willing to talk to me um, when i'm writing a spider story and then um, that story you know the information that gets out there is going to be better and the spread of poor information is going to be um stopped a little bit or or decreased Mm -hmm. so that was uh i think i think it was a fun study to do Um, we had over 80 co-authors from all around the world we analyzed the news in in different languages and um yeah, it's it, it gives me a little bit of hope that there there is <laughs> a uh, there is something yeah. that we can do yeah. about about the spread of fake news. There's so much bad information about spiders on the internet, unfortunately, because people love to hate them, mm-hmm. and there are actual there are actual uh, you know consequences to that. It's not just that I love spiders and I think other people should love spiders. Uh, people being afraid of spiders can can have really um, important consequences. You know, one of the more horrible ones is you know people people have this idea that they should kill spiders with fire it's not just a meme people actually try to do it and end up burning their house down yeah um that's that's a real <laughs> negative consequence of arachnophobia people get into fender benders because they see a spider in their car yeah. and they freak out um, but also more generally, there's actually a really cool paper that that just came out about biophobia. So this is this includes arachnophobia or you know being afraid of insects and other creepy crawlies. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of vicious negative feedback loop that happens when you're afraid of spiders and you or afraid of insects and other creepy crawlies, and then you avoid them, and then you end up avoiding nature, and then you start doing things that are um, counterproductive for the natural world, you know, using pesticides right. when they're not necessary. Um, and, and kind of this feeds back into avoiding nature more and, um, and that has negative consequences, you know, for, for the health of, of our world's ecosystems, but also for our mental health and and things like that. So mm-hmm. there are kind of a uh, broader public health, uh, consequences to to these kinds of fears, and I'll just say also because I I, I said the word creepy crawlies. Of course, I don't think they're creepy. Um, but going back to and the the title of the movie is Bug Sex, and and bugs here is is encompassing insects and spiders. I think I'm okay with the term bug as a catch all mm-hmm. for terrestrial arthropods. I think is generally what it means. So that would include insects spiders other arachnids millipedes yeah um those kinds of things yeah yeah. and um yeah
0: <laughs> it's a bit of an over oversimplification but i think it's a good one <laughs> as well i think yeah as
1: as a title for a nature documentary um arthropod sex doesn't have the same yeah same ring to it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah definitely well, this is great. And, uh, yeah, I love that study that it, it just shows that, you know, some of the mechanisms behind this. And it's once you hear it, you know, it all kind of makes sense, right? Like you can see how that would work. But to have it down, you know, in a study that you can see these these mechanisms at play, I think, is important. And hopefully it encourages more scientists to speak to journalists because as someone that now does yes. science journalism— Getting people to talk to you is always a problem.
1: Yeah. And I, I think um I mean I used to have this this worry. Um I've gotten a lot more comfortable talking to journalists. I've always been afraid. I mean, I I'm afraid of public speaking. I'm afraid of a lot of things and I just do it anyway. Um but uh but it's you always have this fear of being misquoted mm-hmm. or taking taken out of context. And um I think I think the benefits of speaking to journalists and getting to describe things in your own words um greatly outweighs the the potential cost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I I've, yeah. I've been quoted I've been quoted in, in articles a couple times where, you know, they didn't do a very good job and, you know, I they cherry-picked a quote that kind of fit their narrative or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of times um that I've been quoted, it's it's been good and it means that, you know, I get to have some control over what is being communicated Mm -hmm. about my work or about my area of study and I I think that's really important you know science journalists are experts at communicating with the public but they're not experts on every single subject area that would be impossible so I think as as a scientist um I feel personally, you know, I have an obligation, um, especially because I'm a publicly funded scientist and taxpayers are, are paying my salary essentially. Um, I have an obligation to share my knowledge with the public. And I do sometimes do that directly. And you know, some some scientists like doing science communication, give public talks, have blogs, what have you. Um that's great. If you like doing that, awesome. If you don't like doing that, that's fine too. Um, We're typically not trained in in science communication so Mm -hmm. we may or may not enjoy that or be particularly good at it but um the least we can do i think is speak to people who are trained science communicators like you um you know give them the benefit of our expertise so that they can tell the best story possible the most accurate story possible to the public Mm -hmm. um yeah
0: yeah makes sense makes sense (laughs) i'll uh I'm glad you got it all on tape here now so people can, <laughs> I could, I could promote it. Yeah. Um, yes. talk to me, please. Uh, yeah, no, this is, this is great. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for doing it. Uh, I, yeah, I'll,
1: thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. You're welcome back anytime. So I'll know who to call if I got a spider story on my desk that I, that I need a, that I need help with. So
1: please do. Yeah. Or I can connect you with, with someone else who's an expert on that particular area of spider biology. Um,
0: Great. Thanks so much.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: There we go. Bug sex. It's complicated. Check out Dr. Catherine Scott on social media and at her blog, Spider Bites. All the links are in the, the show description. And do check out The Nature of Things, Friday, March 10th, uh, that should be today that this episode is released, uh, at 9pm, 9 9.30 in Newfoundland, uh, to to watch the, the film. It was a really interesting film. I got a sneak peek of it um, in advance, and I really enjoyed it. It was really cool. Um, as always, follow the show, 2 Bread 4 you uh, at 2 4 you on Twitter and Instagram, website 2 and Gmail, 2 you at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, review, give us a like, give us a follow, uh, all of that really, really, really helps. Thank you to The Freak Motif for the music, thank you to Sebastian Abood for the logo, links to their stuff on the website as well. Until next time, thanks everyone for listening, uh, bye for now.